Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate it if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I'm here at the Superstars Writing Conference and feel like a kid in a candy shop. There are so many amazing creators here, and I now have the pleasure of interviewing James Artemis Owen, an amazing artist and brilliant author. He's known for his creator-owned comic book series, Star Child, and I just finished reading the first volume of his fantasy series, The Chronicles of the Imaginarium Geographica, titled Here There Be Dragons. So that's how I know him. Welcome, James. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is great, and it's just, I got all kinds of questions, and <laughs> I've been forewarned. I can say, hello, James, and you can take the next hour right there. Uh, just, might be accurate, yeah. <laughs> so um, for you, which came first, illustration or writing? Uh, I grew up in a, a family of artists. My mother was a teacher, but but she was also a painter. Uh-huh. Uh, her younger sister was a graphic designer, and her older brothers were painters and printers. So I'm pretty sure the uh, the illustration came first because that was my environment. And as I started getting older, I started telling stories. And that may have been the, the natural progression to becoming a, a comic book creator because it was words and pictures. And that was, that was my natural habitat. Yeah, that's amazing. So then, okay, so you went to art, to writing, but your writing is just, obviously, it developed well past comics or graphic novels. It was um, a natural expansion, I think, uh, where I'd wanted to tell different kinds of stories. And comics are so labor-intensive, especially when uh, th- there was a point in the mid-'90s where I was writing, illustrating, lettering, painting the covers for, and publishing a comic book every month. And I was doing it solo. That's crazy. That's, that's a lot of work. Um, I like doing the illustration. I wanted to have something that allowed me a bit more latitude in doing the types of drawings I wanted to do, but also telling the stories in what felt like a more efficient manner. And the old-school book format of the illustrated novel – Treasure Island, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, where the editions I grew up with had illustrations. That felt to me like the natural evolution of what I was doing. Right. I mean, like I said, I just finished reading Here to Be Dragons. And first of all, the the cover is amazing. That This is your art? It is. It's just it is so stunningly beautiful. But then I look inside and all the illustrations, all the plates in here, I'm, I really... That's one of the first things I saw, because with Writers of the Future, we have that too. We have mm-hmm. every story has an illustration. And now, since we've gone trade paperback, we've got the the color plates up front, and then we have the black and whites interspersed throughout in the actual stories themselves. It's just, a, it's beautiful art, you know? So just, I'd stop and just look at this stuff here <laughs> before getting to the next chapter, because it was so amazing how you did this stuff. So, so I'm putting it together, like on your trajectory as an author then so you've got starting back from you know say you're a kid and you you were born you found a crayon you started illustrating and then uh age six uh goldilocks and the three bears plus santa claus by jamie owen age six (laughs) 
which was my uh, my response to my asking my mother to buy this little ray gun, the kind that made sparks when you pulled the trigger yeah, yeah, yeah. at the corner grocery store. And she said, you should go earn the money, thinking I'd go rake the neighbor's yard or sell hen's eggs or something. I created these little picture books and sold them to the neighbors for 15 cents a piece. And uh, it was a friend of mine that found one in his mother's house and put the thing on eBay. And that's the first point where I realized wow, I had actually been doing that with intent of selling them for money when I was six years old. Wow. So you've been locked and loaded for a while. I have. <laughs> so then, so the, you've sort of answered the initial question. So when did it start becoming a for-profit activity for you? So let's take it to the next level where you're able to take the, the income side of it to actually become a um, a means of maintaining a livelihood. How'd that um, come to build up to that? I was uh, the youngest publisher to be an exhibitor at the San Diego Comic-Con. My business partner and I were both 16. Um, I had written and illustrated a comic book that we published and debuted there. Uh, we had to hire my aunt to drive us because we didn't have licenses yet. Yeah. But that was the point where I, I decided I want to make this my career. And I'd gone through some health crises when I was younger, um, both in grade school uh, with a, a blood disorder that left me hospitalized in Phoenix for most of that year, right. and then a, a bone tumor in my right knee when I was in eighth grade. And both of these situations have been life-threatening and a bit of a, a reality check that most people don't get that young. And those experiences taught me that our time is limited and we need to make the best use of it that we can. And I didn't want to waste time doing things that didn't matter to me. Right. I wanted to write and, and draw these stories and make a living at it. And my partner and I started a company at 14. And um, through those early years, I met a lot of notable people at the comic conventions. Right. Um, in my early 20s is when I started Star Child. And I had the experience of, of how to do this because I'd done it as a teenager when I still lived at home. I was still in high school. If I made a mistake, my mom was there to, you know, help sort it out afterwards. But it was learning and making those choices and making some mistakes when I was very young so that as I got older, I could refine the process, not just creatively, but as a business. So the intent was there very young, and as a teenager, I, I made the choice, and it's been a pretty straight line ever since. That's amazing. Now, you've got—so this, this book here is published by Simon & Schuster. Yes. So, I mean, that's a major topic of discussion these days, on, <laughs> you know, the traditional versus, you know, independent, solo, Kickstarters, all these different things. And so did you hit, like, the traditional publishing straight away? Uh, no. Um, I had done some novels for a publisher in Germany uh, who was a fan of Star Child. <laughs> and so that was my experience writing prose, is, is they hired me to write one book in a series based on a short outline. Um, I found out none of the other authors had turned in any books in that series. So I increased my outline to cover all seven books, and they hired me for all seven books. <laughs> Smart. And that was my practice run. Um, the first book, it was titled Myth World, it was the series. Um, it won the AI Award for Best International Novel in Germany. And 
I decided I liked writing novels. So then it was um, developing the next book ideas. And the idea for Here There Be Dragons was the next big thing on the plate. I got a good entertainment attorney, again, because people had been fans of my illustration work. He got me a manager. Um, they had connections to Simon & Schuster's children's division, which had never occurred to me um, to publish these as books for younger readers. But that editor made us the best offer. And that turned out to be one of the greatest opportunity moments of my career because books published and marketed to younger readers can be marketed up to older readers. And the reverse is almost never true. That's a fact. And so Simon & Schuster uh, made us an offer. I said, wow, that's, that's really great. I said, we should, we should ask for more. And so we asked for more, and they increased the offer by 50%. And I said, wow, that was pretty fast. Maybe we should. And my, my manager said, no, say yes. Just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had planned uh, into it to, to have it be a series. Uh, they published seven books in the series, which was the complete story. And I published the eighth book um, a little over a year ago from a Kickstarter. But because I was the designer of the books and the illustrator, I could design it to match the Simon & Schuster hardcovers exactly. So people buying the book that was independently published through my own imprint, the only thing that's different is the logo at the bottom of the spine. Wow. That's amazing. That's, I mean, that's way cool on that. So this series actually has eight books in it. Yes. And then will there be more? Yes. <laughs> uh, there's a ninth book that's going to be a companion book to the eighth one. The eighth one was a bit of a standalone. Um, it was a bit of an experiment trying that as a Kickstarter. So I did a, a story that had a framing sequence with backstories on a lot of the characters. So these are extra stories about the characters you've read. John, Jack, and Charles' backstories. Tumblr's vacation trip. Oh, I'd love Tumblr. Um, it had stories from all the eras that I touched on in those books. The ninth book is going to be similar, more of an anthology format. And then there will be a second Chronicles, which will be five books, all of which will be published by my imprint, Coppervale. Wow, that's great. Now, this, I mean, it's obviously YA reading and stuff because it's very easy. And it, but your use of all the known mythology, mm -hmm. you know, going through this thing here, how did you come up with this idea of doing that where you take, you create a new, it's not a new mythology. I mean, you put your own mythology in there, mm -hmm. but you just, how you lay it all out and sequence it so that it aligns with all the, the Greek mythology and and all these other things that are their own worlds mm -hmm. of story, and you make them all part of your story now. So you kind of like I have co-opted pretty much all of Western <laughs> literature. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, in one of the Mythworld books that I wrote for the German publisher, there was. Um, a, a story about a, a library slash gallery slash coffee shop, a very unique place called the Pickle Factory, based on a real place in my hometown. But they had a very eccentric library. So I was coming up with different ideas for very eccentric books. One of the books that I described was an atlas of maps to imaginary lands owned by H.G. Wells. And that one line stuck in my head as, this is bigger. This is a bigger idea. 
So the Imaginarium Geographica is that atlas, and it contains maps of every land from every story you've ever read, every myth, legend, fable, or fairy tale has a corresponding map in that book, which has been kept secret by the caretakers who are people in the real world, like Jules Verne and Wells and Charles Dickens and Edgar Allan Poe. And the idea that some of the things they wrote about in fiction might not have been fiction. Maybe these were real adventures they had because they had this huge secret that they kept. That was the first part of it. The other part was I love the idea of creatives and community. The Inklings clearly mm-hmm. <laughs> played a role in this. Right. The pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood as a group of artists was hugely inspirational to me. My own artistic heritage. Uh, my mother is a millet. The American painter Francis Davis Millet was who the, the term uh, soldier of fortune was coined for. Wow. Um, he was the youngest uh, drummer boy in the Union Army in the Civil War. He went on after the war uh, to art school in Belgium, where his roommate was John Singer Sargent. He came back to America, and he, he paid for art school by translating works of Tolstoy and publishing those. That paid for art school. He came back to America, um, where he married Aunt Lily, and the witness at their wedding was Mark Twain. He was one of the heads of decoration of the White City World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. That same group designed and originated the American Academy of Art in Rome, where the first patron that Uncle Frank enlisted was P.T. Barnum. And then he was finishing his affairs here to go become the next president of the academy when he had gone on a a tour of the courts of Europe with his best friend, Major Archibald Butt, who was an aide to President Cleveland. And they booked passage home on the Titanic. Oh, no. John Jacob Astor's manservant got off on one of the lifeboats and wrote about how the last thing he saw was Frank Millett and Archie Butt breaking open the gates to third class and steerage to let the women and children out, giving away their life vest to the first two women who came out, then breaking open a deck of playing cards that was a gift from the king of Denmark to the president and playing a game of cards. And that one inspiration and knowing that, that people like that existed, that I had a connection to, and he knew all of these people. He knew Twain. Twain introduced him to Robert Louis Stevenson, there were these connections through my actual family history that I thought this is the sort of thing that those what-if questions, what if these people had met earlier? What if we didn't know about these connections? What if there was a secret life and a secret world where these people were meeting and exchanging ideas and having adventures? And that was the basis for all of these books. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. And now I understand, like, this is such a far-out concept or... I don't not say far out, but just it's that you would have the I don't it's not even audacity, but just the desire or even the, the thinking that something like that would be okay to do, to have that idea to even to take all these things and to encapsulate them into your storyline. But now with your story, your personal story, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, even even with the reading level. You know, the the plan was to market them to young adults. Uh, Simon & Schuster republished all seven of them in three big omnibus editions meant to attract the Game of Thrones crowd. Without the (laughs) illustrations, did not change a single word. It was all about the marketing. But 
the example I give to people when um, I get asked about reading level, about younger readers, and I say, a younger reader who is a good reader can enjoy them. The older they are and the better read they are, the more they're going to get out of them. Exactly. So the chapter about the Green Knight mm-hmm. in this book, the Green Knight is a knight made of wood. To a younger reader, knight cool. made of wood, that's cool. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a slightly older reader, he's the guardian of the island of Avalon. So there's an Arthurian myth tie to this. And that's interesting. As you read a little more deeply, you realize the Green Knight is actually Charles Darnay from A Tale of Two Cities. And he became the Green Knight as penance for Sidney Carton's sacrifice. But you don't have to know any of that enjoy to enjoy it. it. But if yeah. you do know that, you realize there are deeper levels to this and that these fictional characters were friends of Charles Dickens, who was a caretaker. No, it was, that's what I didn't have that much depth, but I did get a lot of what you're saying here, that on the, on the surface it's just very fun, fast reading, but then the history that you have of, of fantasy and of planet Earth, mm-hmm. as, as you've got in here, and um, going through the various levels. And it was like the clever one when they're in the tower of mm-hmm. the uh, the map maker there where they went to, he left the door open and, and that monster made it out, that sea serpent made it out, and then it went into the other door, which, where is that? It's in Scotland. <laughs> was, oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. There comes Mr. Loch Ness himself. <laughs> That was, that was, it was just fun. It was very fun to read your book. And for me, I'm more into reading books for pleasure. Because if you want something that's really hard hitting and something that's really like teaches you a lesson, just, I mean, I get 20 different alerts a day, news alerts, you know, just do that if you want to have your fill of that stuff there. And it's just, it's just crazy. But here, you know, the very end, you know, you've got, the three, the the three uh, caretakers there: Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Is like, yep, what? Saving that until the very end—that was a huge battle uh, to promote this. I spoke at the American Library Association conference in New Orleans, and it was the first one they'd had after the the hurricane. And I was there at that one. Oh, were you? Yeah. Okay, so I was I was talking about this book, and. You know, we're we're now 17 years in on the hardcover, so I don't mind talking about who the characters are. Um, but we kept it a secret that John, Jack, and Charles were Tolkien, Lewis, and Williams. And this was their first real meeting of these three friends that formed the Inklings and were friends throughout their lives and influenced each other throughout their lives. And I thought, how remarkable would it be for the origin story to be the same? And so I started talking about this in front of all these librarians in this banquet hall. And I said, and I don't know if I should actually give away the big reveal at the end. And my editor sitting in the front says, yeah, you should tell them. And a crazy lady in the back jumps up and starts yelling, no, no, don't spoil it. I had no idea that was the associate publisher (laughs) arguing with her counterpart about whether or not we should spill the beans for all the librarians. And uh, he went out and, and I told them, because I said, this is something for you to encourage younger readers. You knowing the secret going into that is going to be more of a teachable opportunity to talk the reluctant readers into giving this a try. No, it's, it's very fun. And I can see how it appeals to all ages. That's what we try to do also with Writers of the Future is we edit it so it's middle school on up. Mm-hmm. 
So if somebody wants to be able to just a fast moving story, high interest story, we got that. But if somebody wants to get any more involved, they've got that as well. Like I said, the different levels you can get and enjoy on that. So on your, I got to ask, on your, uh, your illustrations, are these ink? That- uh, pencil and Bristol board, then ink on the same Bristol board. The original size is 11 inches by 14 inches on each of those. And yeah, those are all completely old school. The cover as well, we did the color digitally uh, because if we got asked for changes, which we actually did on the sixth book, the title was The Dragons of Winter, and I'd worked through several of these dominant color covers, and that one was going to be orange. And they had a sales meeting and then called me and my manager and my attorney. Everybody got on the phone call because they were worried I'd be upset that they wanted to change the color. And I said, well, why, why do you want to change it? And they said, well, our head of sales and marketing feels Dragons of Winter. That's a cool title. Um, orange is a warm color. There's a clash there. How would you feel about making the cover teal blue? And I said, whose suggestion was that? And they said, the head of sales and marketing. And I said, teal blue sounds lovely. Because you've got to choose which hill to die on. And that wasn't it. And I didn't want to assert my, my right over the cover and have the guy selling my book upset at me for the next six months. Yeah. But instead, I said, well, does that mean I get to have my, my lavender purple for book seven? And they said, you have been so agreeable on this. Absolutely. That's what you get for book seven. And then book eight, I got my orange cover anyway. So, Because <laughs> at that point, you yes. control the vertical and the horizontal. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's great. So on, um, now we'll just flip over here now onto superstars. So how did you get involved with superstars? So at Superstars, um, I'd been on a number of panels at conventions with uh, Kevin and Rebecca, and I'd gotten to know them pretty well. And Kevin and I actually started working on a middle grade project that we were co-writing and I was going to illustrate. And that's that's still in the works. It, okay. It's been some time, but I went up to Colorado to stay with with Kevin and Rebecca and talk about this book project. And in the course of staying there, some of these stories that I talk about um, in my presentations came out. And Kevin said, you know, we started this thing with, with Eric Flint and Dave Farland and, and Brandon Sanderson called um, Superstars Writing Seminars. Would you like to be a, a guest speaker? Our next one, their third one, was going to be in Las Vegas. And I said that would be great. And so I went there, and the presentation I did uh, was called Drawing Out the Dragons. Um, and it's about overcoming obstacles to do the things that you love. And I got a standing ovation at a professional seminar. And every video testimonial they got referred to drawing out the dragons. So they said, can you come back next year and do that again? And I came back and we got the same response. And the next year was our first year here at the Antlers in Colorado Springs. And... At the airport, on the way home, Eric Flint had asked to drive me. So we're standing in the security line at the airport, and he said, so we've been talking, and you changed this thing we started. You changed it enough. It will not be the same if you do not come back, and how would you like to be our partner? And that is why I came in at year three, but I am listed as one of the founders. And I've been coming back ever since, and... um, this has become uh, my tribe, as we call mm-hmm. it. Yep. 
which I coined. <laughs> uh, actually, Tiffany Brazell, she's been the one member that has been at every Superstars. And somebody brought up that, that point about, well, James came in later, but he's a founder. And she said, James is the founder of Superstars Culture. Because that's the, the idea I introduced, is you find your tribe, and you love them hard, and your tribe is the ones that support you and have your back. And that has permeated this entire seminar to the point that we have so many repeat members that come year after year. Yeah. A lot of them have, have come back um, because Drawing Out the Dragons has become the other primary keynote. Uh, Kevin, it's always been his popcorn theory. He and I have both changed it up once on the 10th anniversary. He has a new one this year, and I'm doing Drawing Out the Dragons again. Wow. That's a great story. I had no idea. I had no idea. So, like I said, this is the Rise of Future podcast. So, uh, it's about getting advice to aspiring writers. So, um, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? The best advice that I, I think I can give is that if you, if you are passionate enough about something you're creating, you need to finish it before you try to fix it. Because too many people, uh, writers in particular, confuse the, the writing and the editing parts of what you're doing. And you're editing while you're writing, and that's what's stifling your progress in, in most cases. Uh-huh. But if you finish something, now you have something that's complete. It's got corners, and it's fixable. No writer writes a brilliant book. We write books that we then fix up to make brilliant. But you have to have something finished so that you can then go in and put in the parts and the foreshadowing that makes it look like you planned all those brilliant (laughs) bits all along. So finish what you start because something can't be fixed and improved until it's complete. That's great advice on that. Yeah, on this book, let's go take it back, uses a reference point here on Here There Be Dragons. And like I say, anybody anybody listening to this stuff, it's, it's a real fun book, but also for someone who's an aspiring writer, one of the things that we've come up repeatedly to is to read a lot. You've got to read a lot and know what other people have done. How do they do something? How do they introduce characters? How do they uh, create suspense? How do they, force, like you're talking about foreshadowing, mm-hmm. how to do that stuff? Well, the easiest way is to find out what do others do. But in, in here, because you also have this blend in here between reality and fantasy. You've actually taken the two and put them side by side, you know, and which is quite brilliant, you know, how you did that. So you've got like, here's London, you know, where they are there and in mm-hmm. real life. And was it 1913? Uh, 1918. 1918. Mm-hmm. And then you go across this threshold and now you're in the fantasy world of all the fantasy worlds. Mm-hmm. So how that, I mean, that's, I've not seen that. I've seen lots of different things. And like I said, I read a lot right now because I have to, to keep up with all the interviews I'm doing. This is a, like a unique proposition. So how'd that come about? The, the idea of having the Atlas came first. And then there is an actual old Mariner's map that gets referenced all the time about having the warning on the Western edge because they hadn't mapped out any farther. Go you no further. Here there be monsters. Here there be dragons. And I thought, how great would it be to find a map where that's on the other side? What's past that point? And so in the Geographica, that is listed on the other side of all the maps. 
But it's not a warning so much as it is an assurance that there are things out there that are older and wiser than you, and they're watching over you, and they're not going to solve all your problems, but when you're in trouble, someone will step in. And I like that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of of blending all these stories, I mean, um, the sixth book has an illustration I waited six books to draw. It's Jules Verne and an army of armored battle goats on Easter Island. So literally, this is me drawing on all the stories I ever loved and figuring out a way to combine them where people can interact in a way that made sense. Mm-hmm. And the caretakers of the geographic stretching back a thousand years meant that there was a connecting thread that allowed me to bring in any of these people. Back to Homer. I can, I can bring in Homeric myths. I can bring in Odysseus. Gilgamesh is in this at one point. Because there's this thread that allows me to tie them together in a very credible way. And people read stories for so many different reasons. And one of the reasons I read them is those what-if moments where no one on earth has a sure knowledge of what occurred in that little window or this window or that moment. And I would like to fill in those spaces for Mm -hmm. people with the most wonderful possibilities that we can't know that for sure, but what if this actually happened and how wonderful would that be? That's great on that. Now, you had a lot of people toasted at the end, and then you devised how to bring them all back except for one. So how'd that work? I mean, I got it, it's YA, so you're going to do that, but and there's, I don't know if it's like you got to be willing to kill off some of your darlings, but he, I don't know he's so much a darling, but he's, he's a principal person, at least in my respect for Jules Verne, <laughs> you know? So this, this one dude doesn't make it. I'm not saying Jules Verne gets right, <laughs> but one of his main characters that I grew up loving. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these people get toasted and then you worked out how to bring them all back and recover all these areas that have been totally decimated Except this one person, well, I'm, I didn't quite get that. Understand how did that come to be? Um, there were points where I, I, because of my background in comic books, comic books goes through through these cycles, and you have good stories and bad ones. But on the publishing side, the mercenary side of that, protect the trademark. We can kill off a character, but we're going to have to bring him back at some point. <laughs> um, and there are times where I felt like. Some of these some of these deaths need to be unexpected and they need to be real to be appreciated. And they need to stick so that we value what they were before. Because if characters are brought back too easily, then the lessons are lost. Sure. And one of the reasons that one had the fate he did was because of the recognizability. It was it was somebody that was prominent enough that it wasn't just a side character that people could say, well, he wasn't really important to the narrative or to the caretakers who wrote about him. The reason it was effective is because he was well-known. Sure. Good. Okay. He was, like all, all points centered in on him, and he definitely wasn't. Obviously, it impinged on me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we talked earlier before starting this thing on – this is a contest that was created by 
by Owen Hubbard in 1983. Mm-hmm. So what's been your experience with the contest as, I guess, as an outsider looking in, because you're friends with several of our judges. <laughs> right. You're talking about Eric Flynn, who was a winner turned yep. judge. Kevin entered just shy of 20 times. Now he's one of our most beloved judges. Uh, you had Dave Farland, who was a winner turned judge. And Brandon Sanderson, I don't know how much he's still involved with it, but he mm-hmm. was one of the founders. He's a judge. So from a, from your perspective, what can you say about the contest and its value? I was aware of it um, before the, the last, you know, decade or so. Yeah. But the fact that so many of, of my partners as the other founders of Superstars were as involved as they were, you know, um, Eric, Kevin, and Dave, and then now Jody – Mm-hmm. whom I became very good friends with, uh, meant that I was aware on a on a greater level. Um, I've gotten to know a number of the, the winners yeah. um, because they've been attendees here. So I've talked to them more about their experiences. Um, some of my good friends have uh, attended the award ceremony. Joshua Esso is mm-hmm. an editor who, who I'm very close to. I think... <sighs> The fact that you have created an event, you, you have this event that is at a level that the the wider world has come to expect of media awards events. I've I've seen so many things in my career that began very young, where it was almost um, a secondhand sort of thing. The awards were were more for the people giving them out than the people receiving them. And everything about writers and illustrators of the future has, has to me, been about elevating these people. And the, the, the noise of the world can be so overwhelming at times, and it's designed to beat people down. Mm-hmm. Seeing a, a, an event where the quality of people's work is elevated and celebrated is remarkable to me. I, I think it has a lot of value for that reason. And, you know, Mr. Hubbard, I, I was an old school science fiction fan. Right. Uh, Ray Bradbury was one of my mentors. He gave me a jacket quote for my books. Um, oh, and Orson Scott Card. I saw the picture. With, yeah. yeah. And, and, so I was reading a lot of the old school science fiction way back in the day. I devoured it in the libraries. And one of my, uh, my family's close friends that we vacationed with uh, was my mother's best friend's husband. And he was a science fiction reader. Um, he turned me on to Anne McCaffrey. And now I'm good friends with Todd McCaffrey. Yeah. Andre Norton was his other favorite. Another judge? And uh, Seriously. Yeah, I loved her. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. And both Anne McCaffrey and Andre Norton were judges. Oh, wow. Oh, so even better. There's, there's a synchronicity and to Frank it. And Frank Herbert, too, was, but anyway. Um, and then uh, uh, Fred gave me a copy of Battlefield Earth, which took the better part of summer vacation <laughs> to get through. Um, and, and so that was my, my first real exposure to the larger works. I'd read some of the older things in paperback. Um, and then finding out that he had created this this contest. I think he took it more seriously than most of his peers. He took discovering this talent more seriously. And the fact that the focus from the very beginning has been on the winners of this 
that's that's a significant thing. I, I think you're doing a good work with this this competition, and I think it's created a number of people that are going to be great contributors to the field for years to come. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's definitely borne out. Well, the judges, you know, the people that created this conference here, you know, a lot of it has that that same mentality what they're trying to do with you know superstars like you said in in your philosophy coming into on creating the tribe it really is important there needs to be a sense of of kinship and out in this world right now it's like i said i can look to any newspaper article meet news now is no longer news you know, sure <laughs> it's entertainment and what and they see entertainment as it's the doom and gloom and just and the number of articles I saw come up from LA Times after the whole thing just recently happened in um, the Middle East with the earthquake, mm -hmm. and then tolls keep coming up. Now the articles are coming out. You know, when can we expect it to happen for for Southern California? You know, are we prepared for when it hits? You know, it's like it's just they're taking that and just the the merchants of chaos, the doomsayers are just there. Like, okay, let's churn it out because it gets people all freaked out. So what's what we try to do with Rise of Future is lend a helping hand. And this year we've got winners from nine different countries. Amazing. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it really is amazing like that. It's interesting when some of the other judges I've spoken to about the book Battlefield Earth, you mentioned that because Brandon said that's how he learned pacing. You okay, know, that's yeah, <laughs> you know, because it's just like it's the fast action and and stuff like how short sentences give you faster action, and long sentences and long paragraphs slows the story down. Yeah, you know, different tools that you can get on that. It's just interesting how some people have talked. You know, that's been one of those books because it it he wrote it in nineteen eighty one, eighty two, in celebration fifty years as a as a professional writer, and a lot of the articles that we use in the in the workshop. They're in this book here, Writer, The Shaping of Popular Fiction. They're, they're still the same ones that are used now on which you're talking about, Scott Card. That's one of his favorite essays there in there. On, and Tim Powers and mm -hmm. Kevin, stuff like that. So, yeah, this purpose is to be able to provide that helping hand. So now you've got yourself um, a bit of a name for helping writers and is it writers and artists? Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, well, even with the novels, the art is still a major component. Doing yeah. thumbnail sketches for the illustrations is part of the writing process. Because if I had a chapter where I don't have a single visual image good enough to do a drawing of, then it's a bad chapter. It's filler. And so, so I'm still um, trying to keep my street cred as a comics guy, too, and an illustrator. It's all part of the, the same creative mind. And so the, the years I've done this have given me enough experience in enough fields and enough connections with enough people because of things like superstars yeah. that if I don't know the answer to someone's problem, I can usually find someone who, who can. And I... I grew up in a family of people that believed in creativity, so the answers were right there. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that same sort of response at school. Um, they weren't as interested in helping me. Every once in a while, you get that one teacher, you know, the one that we write about. Yeah. And I thought, you know, there's so many people who are so afraid 
to ask because they don't believe they're going to be taken seriously. They don't believe they're going to be encouraged. And I resolved to never be the person who, who would do that to someone. I wanted to be the person that even if I couldn't give them the answers, I could at least give them some encouragement. You know, we all, we all talk about Mr. Rogers and his unfailing ability to be kind and gracious. And it, it's never going to hurt you to be kind. You know, there are so many people in the world that there, there are bad people. There are genuinely bad people. Mm-hmm. But there are a, a far greater number of people who are simply in, in some kind of pain that don't know how to express that. And they don't know how to express the things they want that can make their lives more fulfilling and happier. And if somebody asks you a question and you can give them a bit of kindness in the process of trying to help them find that answer, then you've just elevated someone's experience. And that elevates us all. Absolutely. So you do the superstars. Do you do any other activities throughout the year that also, like, do you have a writing group that you're part of or that you help with? Or is it superstars? Is, it's, um, just- it's primarily superstars. I I have a number of conventions that I still appear at as a guest. And, and we've kept that to a, a fairly tight number the last few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some of those I'll do, I'll do presentations. I've done Drawing Out the Dragons at popular conventions where people don't expect a motivational talk to be on the programming. Right. But people have heard it and realized there are going to be a lot of people, maybe a lot of young people in the audience that need to hear that somebody who is considered successful in their field struggled a lot and overcame those struggles to get to that point. A person like that is going to empathize with you. They're going to understand you. They're not going to reject you. And so they put me in that position to try to reach especially young people like that. Um, I've appeared at writers' groups. Uh, Dave Farland had me appear for Apex a couple of different sure. times. Yeah. Uh, so when I'm, when I'm asked if it's a, a group that I think might be able to benefit from something I have to share, then we'll usually find time to make it happen. Thank you. Now, one of the questions I was like asking authors is what you just alluded to is where you were, the, you got the highs, because usually when I end up talking to an author, it's because they've reached some t- some level that they're, they got something to say that people want to listen to, but mm. you don't start off like that. You go through... Some lows are really low and some are like super really low, you know? Yes. So go ahead. I mean, we've got like 15 minutes left here. So if you can give like for somebody listening here, you know, points where you're ready to throw in the towel or the towel was somebody else threw the towel in for you or whatever that you had to get through that in order to make it to where you are now. The... uh the key story in drawing out the dragons uh there's a, a print book and an ebook uh that we did of that um because i started sharing these talks on book tours mm-hmm. simon and schuster sent me out on a book tour and i realized i'm going to have the attention of a bunch of students for an hour and i didn't want to do a book talk I didn't want to just sell them on, hey, here's a cool story. Go buy more of my books. They have librarians to recommend them. 
They have booksellers that partnered to have my appearance sponsored there that can sell them the books. I thought if I have the attention of a bunch of young people for an hour, I want to talk about things that are going to be more meaningful than that. And the key story, the the low point by any measure was two issues into my career in comics with Star Child. I'd just come back from a disastrous job in Ireland where I had moved there, sold everything to go take a job at the Sullivan Bluth Animation Studio right as they were closing down. Oh, no. I was there six hours. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, I still carry around uh, the last Irish pound I have. It's over there in my briefcase. Came back to Arizona, started a new comic book company where I didn't have to rely on anyone else's employment. I had to sell a thousand copies an issue just to pay for the printing bill. And uh, my my wife, I was married to then, uh, she got a job selling floor coverings, so the basics were covered, rent and utilities. And if I could just sell enough to keep going and create more books, eventually we'd sell enough to make it self-sustaining. Right. First issue sold 1,200 copies. So printing bill and pizza money. (laughs) Second issue, we got the orders for 600 copies, which meant we can't afford to even have it printed, which means there is no third issue, which means this is all over before it's really started. And one issue, or one week, uh, one week after the second issue shipped to the comic book stores, I crushed my drawing hand in a car accident. And everyone in the world said he had promise and it's over now. The doctor at the hospital, uh, when I woke up, um, because I I was embarrassed, I was blocking traffic, and I tried to push the car out of the intersection with a busted hand, and that took me out. So I woke up in the hospital, and and, uh, they said, you had a pretty bad accident, but you're lucky. All you smashed up was your right hand. And I said, that's not so good because I'm a comic book artist. And he said, not anymore, you're not. The specialist needs to come and speak to you. This is not good. And they told me that even with therapy, I might have 50% use because the bones that had been broken, he said, we can't really do surgery to repair it. It's going to create scar tissue that makes the therapy worse. We'll put the bones in place, let it heal, go to therapy. But you need to make some other choices about your life. And I had to decide what I really wanted. And the reason that was a low point was I I insisted, I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to jump right back in the saddle. And uh, there was kind of a gentle intervention. Family and friends and doctors saying, having a positive attitude is great, but you have to face reality of what has happened here. And you don't seem to be willing and that was a point where I realized this, this was my choice alone, because even the people that cared the most about me, out of their love for me, were going to push me in a different direction. And the realization I had was that every once in a while, the universe opens itself up to you and you alone and shows you something that's possible. And you have to decide how much you believe in what you see even if it means telling everyone else in the world that they're wrong. Because no one else has your perspective, your unique mix of hopes and ambitions and dreams and desires. And no one, no matter how much they care about you, is going to be able to see that exactly the same way you do. 
And so I had to make my decision and I, I made my choice and said, this is what I do. And I created a prequel issue, Star Child number zero. That was designed to have a half-page illustration and a half-page of typeset story on each page. And I did the layouts for those half-page illustrations left-handed because I make my choices about the lines with my mind, and I had another hand that was slower, and it didn't have the muscle memory, but I could still make those lines. Mm -hmm. Then I started calling comic book artists that I had met since I was 16 years old, including Mr. Will Eisner, whom the Industry Awards were named after, who did an illustration for that book. Some of the best artists in comics finished those illustrations, and the deal was, if they would do those illustrations for me so I could publish an issue, I would donate all the art to children's charities. And Alan Dean Foster wrote an introduction to it. The artist Frank Kelly Freeze wrote an afterward. We had all of these tremendous artists, several of whom worked with Neil Gaiman on Sandman. So there was a, a high profile for that book. Uh, my wife lost her job in the meantime, and we hoped we would sell 3,000 copies to pay the printing bill on the previous issue and move forward. And the thing about making hard choices, especially in your lowest moments, is anyone can complain about their fate. But someone who is visibly stuck in the mud and insisting, I'm going to get this cart out of here, people feel inspired to climb in and help you. They see something in your face, they hear it in your voice, and they will find ways to help you. And we sold 45,000 copies wow. of that issue. Then I was invited to go on a convention tour with some of the prominent self-publishing wow. artists. The first two issues were reprinted and sold 10 and 15,000 copies each because now all these thousands of people wanted to know where the story was going. The third issue I did after a year of rehabilitation picked up where the story left off. We went on to sell hundreds of thousands of those comics, which got the attention of the editor in Germany who hired me to do Mythworld, which gave me the experience to write and sell Here There Be Dragons. Wow. One, that's an amazing story, obviously. But two, you sound a lot like John and Jack. <laughs> I'll, I'll take two that. The, two of the principal characters in here, when you just said that, like, wow, that's John. Wow, that's Jack. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's interesting you said it also, because um, Kelly Frias was the first founding coordinating judge for the Illustrators of the Future. And Will Eisner was one of her first judges. Oh. Kelly met me at a convention in Phoenix when I was 15 years old. And the best thing about him was what we do at Superstars. My age was irrelevant to him. I had done enough work to earn a spot on that panel. And Kelly treated me like a peer. And that's what we try to do with all of these writers and creatives here is we're all doing the same job. Some of us are farther up the mountain than you are. But we are, are carving a path, and you know it can be done, and we can show you. It's not going to be the same path, but it's possible because we're all doing this together. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that people need to really appreciate is that there are other like-minded individuals, whether it be artists or authors, that want to see you make it. You know, there's – if you're in – if, if, if you don't have a tribe that's there with you that's got your back – 
you need to lose whoever you've got there. Yep. You, you can't be with someone that's telling you, who's reminding you not to get quit your day job. You don't need that. You have your own concerns about it. You need somebody else to reinforce that and just kind of like keep you down. And it doesn't, you know, that sort of choice, it doesn't need to be hostile in any way. It's simply acknowledging that some people and people that you may care about, that care about you, are not serving a useful purpose by being that close to you. And it's all right to step away from people. We can move in and out of each other's paths in our lifetimes. And sometimes it's better to not be around the people that don't see things the way you do. Yeah. And especially if you're writing fantasy in science fiction. Oh, and, sure. And you're, and you're postulating and creating realities that don't exist at least right now, you know? Um, or if they do, if they only exist in your in your mind, in your world, that you need to, to grant it the ability to, to exist and you need people that can actually grant you that. And, and that's one of the reasons you, you mentioned about the mixing of the fantasy and reality. Keeping that possibility alive is hugely important to me. And just before I came here to Superstars, um, Monday night, I did the first event I'd done in years in my hometown, and a friend had asked me to come to the book fair. And appearing at a scholastic book fair was like, we fulfilled childhood dreams here. <laughs> but I was, I was there signing books, and one young lady asked me about the caretakers. And she said, so they all, they all wear that silver pocket watch with the red dragon. And I said, they do. And she said, so is that real? And I reached in my pocket. And I showed her a caretaker's watch. And I said, the caretakers are always with us. Someone's always watching. And magic is real. That's actually, first of all, that's, that's very true. It is absolutely true. And it's, um, I think with, again, if you're an aspiring author or an aspiring artist, you got to have that. You got to have your faith in yourself, first of all. You, you've got to have that because if you don't have it in yourself, don't expect somebody else to to say, come on, you can do it, sure. you can do it. I mean, it's fine if somebody can give you reassurance, but if you don't have that in yourself, um, nobody else can do it for you. I, I agree. You know? And if, I, if I'm talking to somebody who's really struggling with this, the first time they tell me they don't believe they can do something— I'm going to try and encourage them, and we're going to focus on their strengths, and let's find a way to make this possible. Absolutely. The second time they tell me, I just can't do this, I'll say, well, tell me what you're struggling with. Let's see if we can find a way. The third time, I tell them, maybe this isn't the path for you. Yeah. Because it's got to start with them, and it's the cart in the mud analogy. Somebody who's saying, oh, it's, it's stuck, I can't make it to market, This is the day is just a failure. You might empathize, go, wow, that's too bad. I'm so sorry this happened to you. If you see somebody up to their waist in the mud saying, I'm, I'm going to make it to market. I'm, I'm good. I'm trying. You're not just going to walk past. You're going to say, let me set this down. Let me, let me give you a hand. I'll bet the two of us can make this move. And then someone else steps in. And then someone else, 10 of us, can make that cart move. Yeah. And then that one person that needed the help gets to where they need to be. All along, they said, no, I got this, I got this, I got this. When it's very obvious, like in your final battle scene there. Yes. <laughs> you, need, you need your friends. Yep. You definitely need your friends. 
So, so I've read this book here, There Be Dragons, but um, for someone to get introduced to you, is this, is, is this like the, um, the James Primer or is this? That's the first book, um, but it's also, as, as you, you've, you've clearly sussed out, it's infused with a lot of my personal philosophies and beliefs, mm-hmm. um, not giving away too much. John's conversation with his mentor, that was a surprise. I wrote so much of that book to be able to write that scene. So, yes, as, as a book that shows the best of what I believe, the book that shows the best of my creative writing abilities and my illustration, um, Here There Be Dragons, is the best place to start. I mean, it was an awesome place for me to start. That's, that's <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you know, no problem saying that at all. So, I'm assuming people can find you? Uh, JamesAowen.com. Um, that's the, the primary website, uh, the Copper Bell publishing website spurs off of that. That's got the, the books and prints and other things that people can order under Facebook. I'm primarily under James Artemis Owen. So my, my full name, uh-huh. there's a fan page under James A. Owen and a Copper Bell page, but I'm mostly active under my, my personal one. And I try to be as responsive as possible. I, I always respond to anyone that contacts me and that's where I'm most easily found. Uh, so Facebook under James Artemis Owen and online under jamesaowen.com. That's great. Well, this has been, I knew it would go fast and <laughs> it did. Uh, so I really appreciate this time you've, you've provided for this. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It's free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, James. Thank you, John. Thank you.